in survey after survey, people identify fear of the future and particularly future provision as one of their top five worries. It's one thing to be concerned about global warming or Joseph Coney or the upcoming election, things that are kind of out there in the distance somewhere. But up close and much more personal is the worry and concern that many of us carry about making it in daily life. How am I going to pay for the groceries and the rent, pay the bills, and put my kids through college? I've never met anyone that at some level wasn't concerned about the future and provision for it. Whether you're single, married, or married or single again, whether you're young or middle-aged during the twilight years, whether you uh, have children, uh, grandchildren, or don't, whether you live in the United States or uh, Santo de Mexico or, or, or uh, Brazil or, or Mazatlan, Mexico or Moscow, it, it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter if you have little material wealth or in what we would consider the middle class or in the top 13% of Americans that make $100,000 a year or more. It, it crosses every demographic in every culture, in every age, in every stage of our lives, we are prone to some degree of worry, concern, or fear and anxiety about the future. Well, this morning, as we're continuing now our 40-day adventure, Finding Real Life, um, we're, we're, we're going to discover that the real life that Jesus said he came to give us and desires for us to enjoy is one that includes a freedom from worry, fear, and anxiety. Now, in this 40-day adventure that correlates with the historic observation of Lent, we said that our desire is for experience to be rooted in three cornerstone prayers for ourselves, that we'd experience Jesus in richer and more profound ways in these 40 days. Secondly, for five of our friends who need to be touched by the Holy Spirit and experience His kingdom. And thirdly, for God's kingdom to break through into our lives, into our church family, and in the communities that we represent. And we also said many of us are strengthening our experience through fasting, and I just want to encourage you who have made commitments to to fast of all kinds. It's just a joy to hear as I've interacted with numbers of you. Many of you experiencing that dynamic for the first real time, beyond the tradition that maybe you celebrated when you were young and didn't, didn't understand its dynamic. And that it's serving to actually remind us of how much we hunger for God and how much we need God. And every time we're hungry for whatever it is we're fasting from, it reminds us that, that we really need God to break through. And so I just encourage you and say thanks for joining with us. thought maybe this morning I'd share just one 40-day adventure story to encourage and stir your hope. So on Monday afternoon, I, I received a phone call. And I don't normally answer the phone at church because nine out of ten times it's a telephone solicitation. So I just let it go to voicemail. But that day, I just happened to reach over and answer the phone. And uh, it was a couple from southern Illinois, an acquaintance of ours, but I certainly wouldn't have considered them close friends at all. And they said, hey, we're passing through Peoria on our way back home. Would you want to meet us for lunch at Joe's Crab Shack? Well, uh, I'd already eaten lunch. It was about 1.30 or 2 o'clock. But I said, you know, I'll take a rain check, but I- I'll come see you. Well, how far away are you? About 20 minutes. I said, I, I can still come. No problem. So I, I went down to the riverfront and uh, met them at Joe's Crab Shack. And the husband began by explaining to me he didn't really know why, why he called me. <laughs> we don't really know why, other than we felt like the Holy Spirit told me that you'd have a word for us. 
Well, as he began to un- unpack their life story recently, uh, I did actually have some insight from the Holy Spirit for them. That was actually very powerful. So we shared together and then prayed. I prayed for them and the and they for for me for for uh, you know, that period of about an hour. And then when they were getting, we were getting ready to go. He says to his wife, "Go ahead, go ahead." I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> so she hands me a check for the Vineyard Church for three thousand dollars. I'm like, "That's a cool financial breakthrough story." Yeah, that's like the rent for next month, baby. <laughs> so yay, God. So uh, you know, God wants to break through in every way possible. And the takeaway for me, honestly, because I, uh, as you're going to find out, I worry about money uh, and paying the rent and that kind of thing. It was a pledge of God's faithfulness to me. He said, "Like Ben, I've got ways to provide for you that you have no clue about." And so that was really encouraging. So let's pray, Lord. We're just grateful that that you do have ways of taking care of us that are totally out of the blue, and you are good. And we just begin today by acknowledging your goodness and your grace, and we say, God, we bless your name. Even as we just sang, we we join with all of creation, blessing your name, God. You are good. And now we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. May your kingdom come. May your will be done here on the earth, in our lives, in our church, in our in our families, and in our communities. May your will be done, Lord. May your kingdom break through in the ways that you already know we so desperately need. We just give you thanks, God, for your goodness and your love and your power and your provision. Put anointing on your word to each of our lives right where we need it today in your name. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by telling you that I'm a fellow struggler on this journey of finding freedom from worry. I'll confess that in every past stage of our lives, anxiety about future provision has been one of my greatest fears. Um, now, it's not nearly as suffocating as it used to be, finding a measure of freedom there, but it's present nevertheless. Before I was married, one of my preoccupations was, could I afford a wife? In fact, that was the very first question my father asked me when I told him I was pre- preparing to ask for the hand of Tina in marriage. Well, son, do you think you can afford a wife? Well, that was really encouraging. (laughs) And then um, my wife and I believed that we uh, heard the voice of the Lord to call us to leave the comfort uh, and security of our great new job here in Peoria, our new home, the family business, and a certain future to move back to Champaign with no job and no idea whatsoever about how we were going to live or what we were going to do to be provided for, and and an uncertain future of, of all things. That made us relatively anxious. And then in each successive stage, there were new worries. Some of you identify with them. The children come, and then they go off to school, and that's expensive. And then you buy your first home, and and then the kids grow into teenagers. And, oh, my worries, like, they just, like, ramped up because teenagers bring with them a whole new set of worries. And they're expensive, too. And then, you know, came the stage of life where they're ready to go off to college. And oh my, I, so I met with Jim, our, our financial planner and insurance agent. And, and Jim, uh, before our oldest daughter, Emily, went into college, projected uh, using the, the average in-state school tuition cost for a four-year school in the state of Illinois that Tina and I would need to have saved 250000 to send our kids to school. Well, and I just basically gave up. I mean, at that point, you're like, why even bother saving, right? And then, you know, the church grew, and that brought our own set of challenges, and then our oldest daughter wanted to get married, and that cost some, and then our remaining three single children would like to get married, as far as I know, someday, and that's going to cost. And 
Then we have grandkids, and man, Katie bar the door, you know, because they're expensive. <laughs> and and then two years ago, God directed us to leave the security that we'd worked so hard to work for and earn over 30 years to, to move back here and basically start all over. And that brought in another whole set of worries. And, and you know, it's just been there at every stage of, of our life. Now, please understand, I'm, I'm not sharing this this morning to elicit your sympathy. I, I'm just identifying myself with you as a fellow struggler in this particularly difficult and challenging area. Thankfully, in our 40-day adventure, we're, we're discovering that the real life that Jesus said he desires for us to experience includes freedom, freedom of all kinds in his kingdom. And we've discovered that he, he stated clearly so in these words in John 10.10 10, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. He was always framing life in the context of a struggle between two kingdoms, God and Satan, light and darkness, goodness and evil, that our lives are, are in this constant battle, this warfare, and they are polar opposites in their intent, but that Jesus desires for us to actually experience a, an abundant life that's full of freedom, freedom from the power and effects of the enemy. For instance, we've learned that freedom from sin through his gift of forgiveness Freedom from sickness and disease through his gift of restoration and wholeness. Freedom from the devil and his demons through the, through the gift of deliverance and freedom. Uh, we've learned it's a, a life of freedom from hopelessness through the power of prayer uh, last week. And today we're going to see that he invites us to walk in freedom from worry, fear, and anxiety through the ability to trust him. So let's look now to what Jesus said about it. If you'd like to uh, open your Bible with me to Luke chapter 12. Open your Bible app if you have it on your phone. We're going to read a, a lengthy portion of Scripture in Luke chapter 12 where we're going to hear this invitation to a life of freedom from worry, fear, and anxiety from Jesus. Luke 12, we're going to begin in verse 13. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? And then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life's not measured by how much you own. And then he told them a story. A rich man had fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink. And be merry. But God said to him, You fool, you'll die this very night, and then who'll get everything you've worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth and not have a rich relationship with God. Then, turning to his disciples, Jesus said, That's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear, for life is more than food, and your body more than clothing. Look at the ravens, they don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. But God feeds them, and you're far more valuable to him than any bird. Can all your worry add a single moment to your life? And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. If God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, will he, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? And don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. 
These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and He will give you everything you need. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. Where your treasure is, the desires of your heart will be also. Now, to begin with, I'd like to say I just take comfort in knowing that Jesus acknowledges our preoccupation with fear and worry and concern. That's comforting in a strange way. It's a relief to to me to know that Jesus is aware that we're prone to worry, that we're driven and concerned about our basic needs for survival. In fact, he's so aware of our preoccupation that he talked more about money and provision than any other single topic in the New Testament. If you take all the words in red that Jesus spoke and you add them all up, you'll discover there are more verses that have to do with money and possessions, and stewardship, and trusting Him than any other subject. More than healing, more than repentance and turning from sin, more than loving God, more than relationships, more than the last days and the end of time, more than God's love. He talked about these things. He he knows that we are perpetually prone to worry and concern about our future provision. So that's why He talks so much about it. Now, There are three movements in Jesus' response to this man's request for Jesus' assistance to settle the estate. And the first movement is what I call the essence of real life. Now, people often called upon the rabbis to settle legal disputes, and so this request would not have been uh, unnatural or, or unusual. And since the proportion of the inheritance had already been fixed, the eldest son always received a double portion. The plaintiff's request in this case was was fully legal. He had every legal right to his share of the father's estate. But Jesus' response would have struck the hearing of the first century hearers as, as strongly as it does us today as we listen. He cautions against greed or covetousness or a desire for more. Perhaps sensing that that was the underlying motive in the man's appeal in the first place. But then he lays down the hammer. He said the issue is not the legality of the brother's case. Rather, the issue is that life doesn't consist in what you own. I love how the the Phillips translation reads, For a man's real life in no way depends upon the number of his possessions. The man wanted some of his things. My brother has all the things. Give me some of the things. I want my things. The life of the world uh, is measured in its things. And Jesus said, no, life, the Greek word zoe, from which we uh, get uh, life or eternal life or the rich and abundant life of John 10.10 or what we call real life. Jesus said, real life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions, your things. And then he illustrates what he meant in the second movement of the response, and this is in the parable of the rich fool. A rich man, a farmer, had a fertile farm, produced a great harvest, and in an effort to accommodate his great supplies, his bumper crops, he decided to tear down his old silos, small as they might have been, and build new ones. 
Now, Jesus didn't condemn property ownership or provision for the future per se, but he was critical of this self-sufficient, self-reliant person who thinks that, you know, he or she, as it might be, has everything they have because they've worked hard to earn it. Out of It's the fruit of their own hard work and industry. And that the quality of their life depends on how much stuff or things they might have. Listen to the rich farmer. Did you catch it? I do. I don't. I know. I'll, I'll tear. I'll build. I'll, I have. I sit. My crops, my barn, my wheat, my goods, myself, my friends. Did you catch Jesus' words? You fool. Who's going to be everything that you have? You know, it's as if God were saying, I'm the owner of everything, including your life. The stuff that you've worked hard to earn, I own it all. I'm the owner of everything. It's only on loan for me, and you don't know the terms of the lease. Jesus is illustrating how we should live. On one hand, in a vital, vibrant relationship with the living God, who is the owner and provider of everything, even the stuff that we worked hard to earn through education and sweat. And on the other, he's saying that we should live with an open, generous hand to others, taking our direction for stewardship of everything we own from him, being rich towards God. And then Jesus moves into the climax, the third movement of his response when he says, don't worry. Now, in that audience were stay-at-home moms. There were craftsmen, workers in the trades, owners of retail businesses in those small towns, maybe some Roman government employees, people who were seamstresses or cooks or custodians or... Uh, and otherwise employed, maybe some underemployed, some unemployed, perhaps some retired. They were mostly poor, although certainly some of substance. But I like to think that they had the same kind of fears and worries and anxieties that you and I have about paying for the groceries and the rent and the bills in our children's futures. But as they listened intently to Jesus, he described a new kind of life a life of fullness and abundance that was available in his kingdom, and it was a life free from terrorizing fear, worry, insecurity, and concern about the future. If you'd been in that audience that day, you would have heard what we just heard. Don't worry about everyday life. Don't be concerned about what to eat or drink. Don't be afraid. Your Heavenly Father already knows everything you need, and He'll give you everything you need from day to day. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't be concerned. Now, that was radical. It was just so unlike anything they'd ever heard. And like those people in the audience, you and I are prone to respond maybe the same way when we first hear the words. Yeah, but Jesus, you know, you just don't understand my circumstances. Oh, He doesn't? The Son of Man who doesn't have anywhere to lay His head? Actually, he does. And over the years, I've kind of come to think of Jesus' words not so much as a command, but rather a gracious invitation to worry-free living. And I like to think that implicit in the invitation is the power to actually obey. Otherwise, it would be an insincere 
invitation. There's power to actually live the way he's inviting us to live. It's possible. Now, Jesus' invitation to not worry has in itself three points. There are three movements here that are very compelling. And the first is that worry is unnecessary. That's in verses 22 to 28. And his point here is that God cares for us as his children, and so we don't need to worry. And then he illustrates that with a couple of stories, one about birds and one about flowers. Things right there at hand. Now, no no doubt, pointing to one of the many birds flying around there on the mountainside where he was teaching, Jesus said that, well, the ravens that you see, they don't plant and they don't harvest and store their crops, and yet God takes care of them. And then he uses that typical Jewish argument when he says, how much more will God, your heavenly Father, take care of you? I mean, you, you who have the reason of, uh, of use of foresight and planning and, and cultivating and harvesting and storing, if you have that ability that the birds don't, how much more will God make sure that your needs are covered? And so in this instruction, I like to think that Jesus implicitly acknowledges that prudent foresight and preparation for our future is okay. You know, it's a good thing to have a savings account. That's a wise thing. Having a, a, some kind of plan for your children's college education is a wise thing. Giving some attention and thought and foresight and planning to your retirement years, that's, that's good. Being prudent in those ways is okay. And his argument is something like this. If God takes good care of the birds who can't think and plan and prepare and sow and reap and store, how much more will you who can do all those things be well taken care of? You are far more valuable than a raven. And so your worry and anxiety are unnecessary. And then pointing to one of the lilies growing there uh, as a wildflower on the hillside, He said something like this, take the finest fabric that Solomon the monarch ever wore, and in close scrutiny upon contrast, that is but sackcloth compared to the drapery with which God clothes the flowers of the field that is here today and then dies and decays and is used for fuel on a fire tomorrow. They don't work. Those lilies don't work. They don't make their own clothes. Toil or spin is the way the King James renders it. They don't, they don't like have the industry in order to provide for themselves. And yet God takes care of the flowers. How much more will those of you who can think and make your clothes and are industrious be provided for? You're far more valuable. Worry and concern, unnecessary. And then he makes his second point that worry is actually unbecoming of his followers versus 29 to 31. Jesus goes on to say, that's a great picture, isn't it? Kudos to Adam who does our slideshow. God goes on, Jesus goes on to say that he, he might actually expect the pagans or unbelievers, people who don't have a, a vital relationship with God or know him personally, he would expect them to be deeply concerned about material things, worry and Concern for material provision, Jesus said, actually dominate the thoughts of the unbelievers. But they're unbecoming of a Jesus follower. Disciples of Jesus are to have one passion 
that fills our hearts and our minds and our life, and that's to seek the kingdom of God above all else, he said. To make Jesus and his kingdom our primary concern. And when we live this way, he promises that we'll have everything we need and then some left over. It gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. So after moving here last uh, May, having already been unemployed for five months upon our arrival, neither Tina nor I could get a job. And I applied to about 25 to 27 places, and Tina about that many. And we just kind of thought, presumptively, we'd just show up here and get a job. Uh, Not so true. So that first week turned into two, those two weeks turned into four, that month turned into several, and on and on it went, and our level of anxiety began to increase logarithmically. Uh, growing a bit anxious would be an understatement. The only two interviews I got out of those 27 applications, I never even got a call back from, never even heard anything about, just total rejection. So on one particular Tuesday, and this would have been about in the month of July, um, I was feeling very discouraged, and I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll benefit from the uh, uh, perspective of an outsider. So I wrote my brother, Tim, in, in Champagne an email describing to him our, our current situation. And, you know, what should I do? No income coming in. The future's not great. Can't get a job. Tina can't get a job. What the heck are we doing? And he said, rather politely, Ben, you've already got a job. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, yeah, with the benefit of a, of a total uninvolved outsider, he could call the situation rather clearly. Some of you have maybe had that experience. You ask somebody outside the loop, and they're just able to see what you can't see in the, in the thick of it all. He said, you're, you're planning a church. You've got a job. So I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. Now I just need to trust Jesus. Then I remember that on a number of occasions through the Bible, God actually tells his people to pause and look over their shoulder, look in the rearview mirror, and look and recount how many times God has provided for them. And I'll confess that at that point, Tina and I remembered that in 35 years of following Jesus, he'd never failed us to ultimately provide for all that we needed. So that afternoon, late afternoon, early evening, as Tina and I talked, we prayed together, and we committed once again for the thousandth time to put our trust in Jesus for future provision for our lives in our church family. The next day, she got a call from Caterpillar to in, for an invitation to an interview that would eventually lead to the job that she got and is now enjoying thoroughly. I said, Lord, it would have been a lot easier to trust you if that, if that call had come the day before. <laughs> but no, his, his divine lesson for us was with a pledge of his past faithfulness as a as an indication of where he's taking us, he wanted us to take that step once again to trust him. And he's been faithful ever since. Worry is expected of the pagans, Jesus said, but it's unbecoming of you who are my children. And then he concludes with this third plank of the argument that worry is unfruitful in verse uh, the, the balance of the chapter. Now, I like Matthew's account of this same sermon because the the gospel writers often 
gave their particular spin on the same text. And in Matthew 6, the sermon concludes with Jesus' words in this way. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. It's as if Jesus is saying, worry, it's unproductive. You can't purge tomorrow of anxiety or fear by worrying about it today. You see, today is the tomorrow that you worried about yesterday, and it didn't do any good then either, so why start again? Nobody's benefited today by having anxiety or fear or worry or concern yesterday. One wise person said it this way, worry is like a rocking chair that gets you nowhere. And that's really, really good. Many of the things that we worry about, they never come to pass anyway, do they? If we're honest. So now, my question as I listen you know, to, to the words of Christ is, can I really live this way? I think that's a fair, legitimate question we ask upon responding. Can I really live this way? Well, I, I can tell you that while I'm far from having arrived, having just heard my story, uh, I'm much more able to live free from the suffocating grip of this addiction to security that I used to have. I'm getting healthier. I'm not all the way there yet. But, yeah, I, I think it's possible to actually live this way. Not without battle, remember, because we're in the middle of a war between the two kingdoms. It's never going to come easy. There'll always be a, a fight. But but it is possible to live this way. And, and several things have helped me, and so I'd like to wrap it up by sharing just a few tips with you in this freedom from fear, worry, and anxiety. First is keep a biblical perspective. In my years of pastoral ministry, I've been at the bedside of many people who were dying, and I've conducted more funerals than I can, can recount. And I'll tell you, never once have I heard anyone express to me that they wished that they had worried more or had more stuff. Ever. Ever. The Apostle Paul declared it this way, biblical perspective. True godliness with contentment is in itself great wealth after all. We brought nothing in with us when we came into the world, and we can take nothing out with us when we leave it. And so if we have enough food and clothing, let's be content. First Timothy 6, 6 to 8. And keeping a biblical perspective, I will often uh, frequently ask myself, literally, in a hundred years, will this matter? No. So keep a biblical perspective. Secondly, pray and be prayed for. Now, in Matthew's account of this sermon, Jesus encouraged his followers to make a habit of praying every day for their daily needs. Matthew 6, 11, pray like this, give us each day our daily bread. So you don't pray this prayer once for all time, never to be repeated, knowing that God provides you know, everything you're ever going to need, like an unending Walmart. You know, that's not the way it works. It's pray this prayer every day. Give us today the bread that we need today. Pray daily. Now, God the Father is already aware of everything you need. Jesus told us that. The Father's already aware of your concerns about material provision. And he acknowledges that that's normal. But when we pray, we don't actually, in that way, inform him of anything. We're not telling God something he doesn't already know. Rather, we're using that as an opportunity to once again express our trust in Him. Lord, we choose this data that you're going to provide. We're leaning into you for what we need. 
So pray and then be prayed for. In humility, confess your fears and your worries and your concerns to people you love and trust. Maybe this week in your small group or with a friend over coffee or on the telephone or through an email. Tell somebody that you love and trust what it is that you actually have fear about. Through the years, God has used the the prayers of a number of my close friends to like pry my fingers off of this addiction to security and to actually increase my trust. He's used the prayers of others to to heal me from being so risk-averse. I mean, after all, we're planning a church now. That never would have entered my mind 20 years ago. He's used it to strengthen their prayers, to strengthen my willingness and ability to trust Jesus right here, right now. And so I want to encourage you to pray and be prayed for. It's okay to be vulnerable and to be willing to let others in onto your stuff. And then lastly, echoing Jesus' exclamation point on the story, I want to encourage you to give generously. Now, that's no self-seeking motive. Next month's rent's already paid for. We got that, right? And that early gift, that breakthrough this week. It's just to say that Jesus over and over encourages us not to live with a closed fist, holding tightly onto what little or much he's chosen, he's chosen to loan us for a short period of time. But rather, he said, live with an open hand. Why? I think because uh, a, a generos- uh, generosity, spirit of generosity, a, a, a heart that's willing to, to live uh, freely disposed to take God's orders for our stewardship is kind of the antidote to materialism and greed and covetousness. It's not ours, and we take our jobs for distributing it at his direction. And so we demonstrate when we obey God and give that we are trusting Jesus. Every time we give of our hard-earned money in the offering that we'll take in just a moment, or you are prone to benevolence in some other fashion, what we're saying is, God, it makes absolutely no sense to give what I have earned away. But in doing so, in this risky, radical adventure, I am giving because I trust you to provide. And Jesus says, and that's the way you store up real treasure in heaven. There's only one way the Bible ever says you actually store up treasure in heaven. And if you do some study about it, you'll find in the teachings of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, it's when you actually give stuff away that you store stuff up as a treasure that can't ever be uh, eroded or or rust or moth-eaten. So, friends, Jesus can be counted on. And I want to encourage you in closing to take a step towards him in faith today, whatever that might look like. And my my experience is been that I think you'll find him helpful in experiencing this life of love and joy and peace and blessing that he said is yours to have. Lord, thank you for your gracious invitation for us to step into real life by trusting you, by not measuring life by our possessions, and not being so self-sufficient that we that we miss out in a rich relationship with you, and by not worrying because it's unproductive and unhealthy and unbecoming of, of a Christ follower. Lord, I pray that you'd put power on your word today to our lives. Would you anoint it 
so that we could actually experience this freedom. And even today now, Lord, as we give our offerings to you, we, we want to say that we trust you to provide for all of our needs according to your riches and glory by Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.